Hello. Welcome to the Call It Like I See It podcast. I'm James Keyes, and in this episode of Call It Like I See It, we're going to discuss the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine as we pass the one-year mark of Russia kicking everything off by invading Ukraine. And later on, we're going to weigh in on the online backlash that we've seen over the selection of the first Latina to be crowned Miss Coppin State University. Now, this is notable because Coppin State, which is in Baltimore, is a historically black university. And so there's been backlash that's been seen online. Joining me today is a man who, if you get him going, can tell you all about being authentic. Tunde Ogonlana. Tunde. You plan to share with the folks today why there ain't nothing like the real thing? Um, if I share that, are they going to come back? <laughs> Guess it depends on what that real thing is. Yeah, I don't know. I just, you know, maybe I got to keep them waiting. Let's see. Let's see how the show goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, we're recording this on February 27th, 2023. And last week, the one-year anniversary of Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine which kicked off the war between the two countries, passed. And since then, well, since the initial invasion, I should say, we've seen Russia make some gains, and then we've seen Ukraine take back some of what Russia Russia had gained. And we sit today without any kind of real momentum for anything decisive to happen. So Tunde, as we sit here with a conflict that looks like it may be ongoing for a while, what stands out to you most about the first year of fighting in the Russia-Ukraine war? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I think what stands out to me is that it's still going on. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's interesting, just real quick. The thing I wrote down first was that Ukraine is still here, like which is kind of the same thing. Like Like, it was like, oh no, Russia's going to steamroll these guys initially. You know, is what the concern was. It's funny. In preparing for today, I realized, wow, I must have been also a victim of Russian propaganda and disinformation (laughs) because, like, like. It's funny. I was in agreement with the with Russian leadership that they would flatten this country in three or four days. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, so that's what I mean. I'm surprised that they're still here, and um, so that's one thing. Honestly, that it's been a year, and that Ukraine is still out there fighting and surviving. Um, and I know we'll get into you know the nuances behind all of it. And then the other thing, just to finish off, you know, to answering the question directly, is you know. Obviously, the, the, when the tanks rolled over the borders and all that, you know, it's the first time we've seen this type of aggressive move between one country and its neighbor on the European con- continent since 1939. Um, well, in a sense, I mean, Russia kind of they took a piece of they took, took Crimea, you know, but they took those not necessarily by, like you said, with tanks rolling. So, over I mean, this was like official. Remember, they had their um the guys without military uniforms yeah, back yeah, then. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, those, and that's what I'm saying. I know. Proxy groups. Yeah, we'll get into all that. But um, but really just this idea that, you know, there's a land war in Europe for the first time in a long time uh, where all the countries are engaged. I mean, not all, but uh, a lot of countries more so than just the two that are um, uh, going head to head are involved. And it just reminded me of like blunders and you know, I couldn't help but thinking about Hitler when he invaded Russia. Like, it's interesting that mm. that was a big military blunder, which basically led to the demise of, you know, Germany's prowess during World War II. You know, one yeah. could say that had um, he not done that and kept Stalin as an ally, the war might have ended up different. And I think 
I feel like this is a blunder at that level where Putin, just like Hitler, Putin can't undo this one. So I don't see there's any good way for the Russians to come out of this um, because they don't appear to have the type of attitude and, and, and culture that they're just going to retreat, which means that they may escalate it, which again, will probably end bad for them and others, you know, potentially us too. But I'm just saying that, uh, you know, that's kind of my, my takeaway. Yeah, they, they, from a uh, leadership standpoint, Putin doesn't seem to have left themselves any outs here. Like, it's like you either get what you came for and there is no nothing else. Like, it's like they, he's backed himself into a corner where the way he rules, the way he governs, he can't take L's like this. You know, like he can't yeah. just, oh, oh, well, let's just go back. Like, so I guess he and can yeah. and he'll be the victim. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, and actually it's all related in a sense as far as what stands out, because that's you said you were the victim of Russia's propaganda, how big, how bad they were, you know, how, yeah. how big and bad they were. But yes, I mean, and that is to me, what stands out is the the way that Ukraine has been able to, in a sense, go toe to toe with these guys. Uh, you know, Russia, as we were growing up, you know, people born in the 70s, you know, growing up, learning stuff in the 80s and 90s, it's particularly the 80s, Russia was considered a superpower up until you know, the, the, you know, the Soviet Union dissolves. But even since then, you know, Russia has, has put together what from outside appeared, I mean, outside appeared to be a formidable military. And for Ukraine to rip, and so you would, and I should say, continuing on from that, you would think that they did, you know, like intelligence type work and they kind of sized up Ukraine, like for them to, to commit down this road, I just would have thought that, that it was thought out a little bit more and it was planned out a little bit more. Like they kind of anticipated what was going on and what would happen and so forth. And so, you know, it's almost kind of like, like, it reminds me, like, let's say it, it desert storm or something like that. If the U S would have went in and Saddam would have just repelled them and we'd be like, Whoa, 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 Kuwait, you're yeah. out of luck. You know, like Saddam just has the heat. And so, but it's like, okay, like you countries size themselves each other up all the time and they kind of have an idea of what they're capable of. And so for this level of miscalculation, it's just mind boggling to me. And you can get into the reasons for it in terms of, you know, how, how their, their top down system, you know, as far as, you know, the, the people making the decisions may be very far from the battlefields, the technology aspect of it and, you know, the supplying of, of hot, good technology to Ukraine by uh, allies uh, from the West, you know, you can get into a lot of reasons, but just the simple fact of the matter that Russia seems to make this huge miscalculation and they like, they're not, they look like it's just two countries of the same kind of ilk fighting right now. It doesn't look like it's some big, bad bully on the block versus some, you know, little guy about to lose his lunch money. It looks like two equally kind of, you know, e equally kind of strong countries. And that's the part I just, and I still haven't seen really great explanations for that other than Russia just greatly over-exaggerated yeah. in its own minds, you know, their own capabilities. Uh, but that's why it reminds me of Hitler invading Russia um, because it just is a total miscalculation. Like there just doesn't appear to be any well-thought-out reason why this would make sense long-term unless you're, meaning the leadership, right, whether Hitler or Putin, either they're that, they're delusional or, um, which... I don't know either man, but looking at them from the outside, I would ascribe Hitler probably to more delusion than than um, you know. Putin looks like he's 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 probably uh, willing to face certain uh, bad uh, facts and advice. I think with Putin, it looks like maybe he just 
had either <laughs> fired, killed, or jailed enough people in his circle over the last 25 years that maybe he only had yes men and people that were too scared to but tell him the truth. But he's a KGB guy. How could their intelligence be so wrong as far as the, the, the capabilities of Ukraine, even if they overshot what their own capabilities were? Uh, I like mean, but that's all I'm saying is that either the intelligence he was given was correct and he didn't care. That could be the delusional part. He didn't of believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or... Yeah, we it was know. that bad because people were scared to tell him the truth because of the system he's built up underneath him of fear and intimidation within his own ranks. Yeah, I think what we've seen with the turnover in military leadership and all that, um, the issue with the mercenary uh, Wagner group um, and infighting with the military, I mean, all this tells you that there's a lot of mismanagement internally in the Russian system. And it's being masked, and it's not a surprise in an authoritarian system. You got the same dude in power for 25 years. Yeah. There's no refreshing of the tree, you know, like there's no room for new ideas and new, a new yeah, thing. And, and at the loyalty top. is valued over competence and, you know, Correct. all those types so, of things that I think, are I think, normal for authoritarian. And, and that's a good point, right? Like, like that things over time, like loyalty over competence. Yeah. That, that, I mean, this is what happens. You see these kind of blunders. And so, and I think, look, to the to also the credit of the Ukrainian people, I think it was underestimated the resolve, not only of them but of the other Europeans. Because I think, well, in that sense, though, let me just jump in real quick. Because in that sense, it's less like the Hitler's move in in Russia and more like Hitler's move in England. Because remember, a yeah, big part exactly. of what Hitler was doing when when he was bombing and bombing London and so forth in those cities every night was he was trying to break. The, the will of the British yeah. and surprisingly to him and psychologists have studied this after the fact that it didn't break the people. The people didn't break. The people actually became had more resolve as they, they had more resolve as the conflict continued. And as they were bombed every night, it became part of their routine. It no longer was as disruptive for them. And yeah. so in that sense, yes, I think credit should be given to the Ukrainian people. And then I think Zelensky, their leader in terms of keeping the, the 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 resolve and kind of the, the the morale of the country up and that stuff seems to have paid off with victories and you know they have pushed back the what were the front lines you know and and and, and pushed those back into it's still territory that Russia had taken from them but it's it's not what it was you know when Russia initially made their first offensive so you know, like a lot of credit should be given like I think that's a good point that you made to the Ukrainian people and their leadership in terms of just morale, resolve, you know, just kind of really sticking with it, that grit. Yeah. Let, me, let me tell you one last thing that I thought of that stands out to me about this first year is, and let me see how I put this, you know, I'd say early on, there was a lot that stood out to me about our media, really, and how it covered this conflict over others in terms of things like refugees and the way that Russia has behaved in the past. Because remember, this is their third act or fourth act. They did Chechnya, Georgia, and then Syria. But no one was paying attention to that. Yeah. They just pay attention to this one because it's in, you know, the European continent. So it stood out to me that, you know, Russia is behaving the way it's behaved for 20 years. Um, we just, the West just woke up basically last year when it was kind of a country within our sphere of recognition that got it. But I think some of that is Z Zelensky, though, you know, that the way he personalized the conflict 
uh, it definitely, yes, you know, like it, those other conflicts were in, on, you know, in Europe as well. But yeah, like Russia was able to, to, to use force, whether it wasn't necessarily, like you said, tanks rolling, but they were able to use force to acquire more territory, more land. And the response was kind of ho-hum from the West, from NATO and so forth. And that probably emboldened Russia this time, Yeah, you know, to say, hey, you know, we've done this before. The West isn't going to do anything. And so some of that has to be the variable of, of Zelensky, who has been able to, I mean, just being someone who knows how to play the media game, it shows you how being knowing how to play that media game, knowing how to get out and, and get people talking and, and, and so forth that Zelensky is able to do has certainly played a role in how people have reacted and how people have received this one, because it's not much different than what Russia had been doing for 20 years. So, I mean, and along those lines, I had, the other point I wanted to get to on this or, or question I wanted to ask you about this parallel with the actual fighting on the ground, there has been a lot of time and effort and energy spent on crafting narratives, on the information wars, so to speak, that's where Russia's trying to, 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 to run their propaganda. Uh, you know, the US, the West has their the information that they're saying, hey, this is what's going on. Like, and we're talking about not just who's good and who's bad, but like there's that also, but also like what actually is going on. You know, in Russia, it's apparently if you call it a war, you can go to jail, you know. Yeah. And so there's this battle, or and then China's even, you know, recently we've seen China get into the act and saying, Oh, well. This is really about the U.S. trying to wage proxy wars like everybody's trying to craft a narrative that they're hoping will take hold. And so with that, you know, like what with looking at the information wars that have gone on, what, what's caught your eye there? Yeah, no, it's this is this is the fascinating part to me. And I think, you know, um, you know, let's definitely ad address China's uh, potential role and potential for influence in this, um, you know, kind of after this initial part, because I find their inability to kind of do something with this also interesting on the world stage. But, um, you know, let's let's take it back a bit when we get into this information wars, because I think it's very important to get back to our memory of the 20th century and the Cold War. You know, this whole thing between the United States and Russia isn't new. I mean, I think anyone over, you know, 35, 40 years old will know that just having been alive maybe over the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall and all well, that. So, yeah, in the 20th century, it was the defining kind of conflict defining kind of yeah. beef you know post world and, and, war ii the cold war well and and here's the way i look and we've talked about this in several discussions on air which is you know to me the 20th century represented kind of the battle if you look at the 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 19th century as the real development of the industrial age and all that and and people moving from um, um, um you know rural areas and all that to more cities over the 20th century then the 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 war between the West and the East in the sense of the Cold War, the communist versus the capitalist was really about the ideas of how you're going to organize societies. And so Karl Marx and that style. Well, I would came say about, more to that point, honestly, yeah. is really about it's 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 about the attempt at democratic systems versus the more authoritarian systems, because Correct. while we, we frame it as communism and capitalism, which there are elements to that, it really did become ultimately more about. Uh, autocrats against, you know, like the United States, which at least was had the appearance and the, was making an effort in large part to to have more of a democratic system. Um, now, abroad, they were doing other things, you know, like in terms from an intelligence or a military standpoint, it may not have been consistent with that all the time. But at home, I mean, they, they were trying to do it. You know, like it, it was 
you know, something that was an effort was made and progression was made. It became more democratic over time uh, versus countries where things became more autocratic over time. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, look, I think every superpower probably has um, its detractors around the world because, you know, if it's a superpower, probably somebody off. Um, so I think we're <laughs> stepped no different. on a lot of shoes to get yeah, to that. Superpower so, I mean, that's status. just that's just life. Right. And so my point is, is that. Um, but if you look at it from 30,000 feet, you're right. Like it's how do we organize societies? Do we want to have a society where the people have more of a voice, the more democratic side of society where there's things like, you know, the, the entrepreneurship, the personal you know, ownership voice, of capital, blah, blah, blah. Property. Yeah, exactly. Have, yeah, yeah, you can exactly. own property without being harassed by the government, all that. Um, you can transfer that property to your kids, blah, blah, blah. Or do you want to fold into the more authoritarian style where the state sets precedents, maybe the state even owns assets, so things like that, and the state will quote unquote take care of you versus the other system, right? That, and so I feel like the 20th century was that battleground and we won. And so the um, if, if you look at countries that followed our model, England, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, you know, they're kind of Western, West Germany at that point, right? Versus the, the countries that followed the, the Soviet model, which we could say China, Cuba, Venezuela, you know, and I'm, you know, I don't need to rattle them all off. Right. Yeah. I, I think like this, the migration of humans tells you what human beings, you know, they, 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 they voted with their feet. I don't remember seeing over the last 50, 60 years, a bunch of Americans and British and Australians trying to run into China and Russia and Venezuela in these countries. But I do see over that time, People from those countries, you know, breaking down the borders of of the Western countries. So, and people from what, countries that aren't really weren't weren't a part of the kind of the one of the poles, generally speaking, where the net immigration was going more towards the open societies. Yep, exactly. And so, what happens? Fast forwarding now to the twenty first century, we have the United States early on, you know, around the nine eleven time through the early parts of the of the first decade, was the world superpower. And China was coming up and you had this guy named Vladimir Putin that was um, wanting to bring back the Soviet Union, the glory of the old days. So going back to the information war, what happened in 2013, 2014 is that the Ukrainians were looking to get independent from the Russian influences held over from the 90s. A lot of the oligarchs who were in there running business. They were um, a former the government. Uh, republic or, you know, a former part of the USSR. Correct. Yeah. Because, yes, that's a great point that many countries, including Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary and a lot were parts of the Soviet Union, just like Ukraine was. So what happens is those countries prior to the Second World War and that era were not part of Russia because there was no Soviet Union. Um, they were taken over by Stalin after the war when Russia was, I mean, sorry, when Europe was in ruins. So the information war was between us and the Russians, because just like we did in the 20th century, remember, we had proxy wars all over the world between us and the Soviets in Africa, South America, so on, so on and so forth. And so the first time this happened in the last decade was around that 2014 period when Russia annexed Crimea. And that's when we began to see the real information war play out, where the Russians tried to influence Western Europe and us and our populations into saying that Russia had a right to go ahead and annex this part of a sovereign country. 
Well, they, they, that was what we saw is their efforts to influence us, their efforts to, and we've seen this uh, over the 20 teens, it, it evolved even further where Russia's, Russia's just testing their ability to influence nations around the world, including the United States using, particularly using the apparatus of open societies, but also which we don't see, they're doing the same thing at home too. You know, they, they're yeah. trying to maintain a certain perception. And when you look at the information wars, what I find is very interesting about this is that in actuality, this is the normal state of things, is that there are several narratives jockeying, basically, and people pushing these narratives that suit their interests. So Russia has created this narrative out of thin air, basically, that Ukraine is the threat to them. And so therefore, they need to invade them. You know, like So that Russia's created a, a narrative based on a pretext. Now, we call that we, we, in the United States, and you know, we're looking at that is that we call BS on that, really. You know, like, and that's because from our vantage point, at least, the information we've gotten is that Ukraine was doing its own thing. Ukraine, if anything, and this this goes back this goes back to the Hunter Biden stuff. If anything, Ukraine is trying to get some of the corruption out that is in, involved with the Russian oligarchs. You know, in terms of and they're, they're how they are beholden to 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 Russian interests and the Kremlin and so forth. And so Ukraine's making that push. And at the same time, Russia's trying to exert more influence over. So it looks like, I mean, the ultimate way to put a bunch of influence on somebody is to put your troops there and say, hey, this is our land now. Yeah. And so that's what it looks like from the outside. But they, but it's not just, you know, like a, a, a two sides of this thing. There are other narratives that are being pushed. And I, I like that you brought up how Russia and China are both kind of trying to push themselves up the hierarchy in the world as say, hey, we are superpowers as well, in addition to the United States. Because I think China's approach to this has been very interesting from the standpoint of they haven't outright condemned Ukraine. In fact, they, they initially, not too long after the initial invasion, they gave some aid. Now, it may not have been a ton, but they gave some aid to Ukraine. Um, but they've backed Russia in general, and they've pushed more, inf more, more importantly, they've pushed more of a narrative that the United States is the problem here, not Russia. And, yeah. you know, that's despite the fact that Russia invaded this country, you know, like, but yeah. how things are remembered, this is what we have to, when we're, we're looking at this, we have to keep in mind how things are remembered isn't really about what happens a lot of times. It's about who's able to successfully implant their narrative in more people's minds. And so this information battle that we're seeing right now that you can see all these different people talking about this conflict in all these different ways. It's basically that process being sorted out in terms of, okay, well, how this, how will this be remembered? Not necessarily by us who were there, you know, meaning who are alive and present and saw, Hey, you know, Ukraine minding its own business. Boom. Russian tanks are coming over the border. Like, Everybody else, people who came after that, like, how will they remember this? And so to me, that's what really stands out about this. And so you can extrapolate this on any conflict yeah. or, or historical event. Like, oh, this is the process that was happening. We learn one narrative or maybe some people will learn more than one. But ultimately, it's about this is actually just as big of a part as the actual fighting is. How is this thing going to be seen? How is it going to be remembered? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we're watching history being made, right? And you're right. Everyone's we're right, watching it being made, but yeah. separately, we're watching it being written. That's, no, that's what I'm saying. Everyone's yeah. jockeying for the narrative at the same time. And, you know, he who's loudest is probably going to win. I mean, I'm sure that's how it's happened throughout other moments in history. And yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me because I think, again, um, we are much stronger than we give ourselves credit to as Americans. And we continually undermine ourselves. I mean, look at like you said about China. It, it, it hasn't been lost on me that China is in a pickle here. 
because they've spent the last few years really, you know, kind of trying to challenge us and saber rattling and all that. Um, they mismanaged themselves during COVID, as everyone knows. So they hurt themselves with their own population. They have, I think it's as high as 50% unemployment uh, of their own citizens under age 30. So they have a lot of internal issues. And then they look like they're about to side with a country that has a GDP smaller than the state of Texas when we're there, our, we are China's biggest trading partner. Yeah. So what are they going to do? Are they going to go to war with us and then kill, hurt themselves in the process because they're going to have no one they to trade with? They can't sell all the stuff they make. That's what I mean. And so, and Russia can't buy it because they're too poor. So it's it's the info wars to me are interesting from that standpoint. And I think China, you know, is probably well, that's why China's been extra. China hasn't been active in the military part, at least to our knowledge. But they've yeah. been extra active in the information war part of it as far oh, as of trying to push their narrative. But and, I but, think they're, but they're, they're in are, a pickle. Let me give you the other side of the pickle they're in also, yeah. though, because they don't want to do anything that is going to increase the U.S.'s relative power. Correct. You know, so they're like, oh, well, we can't condemn Russia here because a weaker Russia is a stronger United States. And so they're, they're literally looking at this like, OK, well, you know, like we we don't want to no, make the United States stronger. But we also don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot economically, you know. And so, yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of spot. I agree. I mean, because what if I mean, like you said about them sending arms, we can all speculate here. Right. What if what if the next thing is, you know, the president says, all right, if you send Russia arms, we're going to build a base in Taiwan. How do you like that? Like, meaning they don't have they're not, you know, they've been losing balloons. They're not doing too well. So um, <laughs> so that's them. But going back to Russia. Here, here's the thing, because I hear this from certain Americans, you know, because I, I have a lot of people in my life that have, I feel, fell for some of this Russian disinformation. You know, I remember people telling me, oh, well, how do you think Vladimir Putin feels with NATO on his doorstep and, you know, blah, 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 and going east and all that. And I remember looking at a guy saying, that's interesting. I never I never um, heard you be concerned about what Saddam Hussein thought in 03 before we went in and invaded him. Like, yeah. When's the last time you cared about an American adversary? Number one. Number two is and us being on their doorstep. <laughs> yeah. And that's my point. Like, I'm a fan of like the post World War II world makeup of NATO and us being at the top and us being the big dogs of the world. And yeah, you know what that means? We got to send money out to our proxy nations to help them stave off their or like it, it doesn't even have to be a proxy it could just be like-minded again if, yeah, no, if I know, we're fighting I said, somebody against- said to me last week oh why are we sending ukraine all this money and i'm like we only sending them like two billion dollars right now we send every country money from canada to israel to mexico to this that yeah everybody except north korea russia and i'm sure we send money to russia but uh, you know we even still pay rent for Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. <laughs> like yeah. We still send them a check, yeah. even though they don't cash it out of spite. So yeah. my point is, is like, and that's what I said to the person. I go, so hold on. So you think that if, if Putin gets to totally occupy Ukraine and now he's on the border of Poland. So now he's going to say, I got a NATO country on my border anyway. Now he's going to be the victim again, yep. even though he invaded Ukraine. Yep. Then I bet you if he is allowed to do that, he's going to invade Poland. We saw that. That's why I say it reminds me of Hitler. Oh, well, that's you know, like what, we that, talk about Neville the Chamberlain. Why it was worth when you go back and, and took this back to 2014 and how this was a progression from Putin. Yeah. And yes, if we don't st- if, if we don't assist nations that are trying to stand up to someone like that, nations that are trying to become more democratic, trying to become more open, then they are it, it, they succumb to the uh, the autocrat Putin, and then Putin's going to be emboldened well, to keep going. Two, two and, things. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, and then one other thing, because I, I want to get actually to the U.S. politics part and how this is playing well, let out. Let me ask you one question before you jump. Okay. I was just going to, on a serious note, because 
when I talk to my fellow Americans here who I feel um, have, have sided with the Russian angle of viewing this, I wonder about how people used to talk about someone like Neville Chamberlain. Yeah. And call him an appeaser. Well, that's to what we're going to. But that's what I want to talk about. And in, in, when we talk about the U.S. piece, the other piece I wanted to mention, though, real quick before we get there was uh, the the I think uh, not credit, but respect has to be, you know, kind of looked at. It has to be looked at from a respect standpoint. Putin has played the information war very well, like as poor as they've done from a military standpoint compared to what their expectations were. Their their playing of the information game has been. You, you would almost say masterful. Yes, because we, yeah. there is a undercurrent in the United States that, yeah, Putin is cool. Putin's fine. Let Putin do what he wants to do. Like, what do we want? What do we care what's going on over there? And as you pointed out, that's very similar to the kind of sentiments that we've seen in the United States in the past of just people who were termed isolationists, you know, and just worry about the United States. And, you know, like that, that's something that we'll talk about that right now. And I might as well get to it because th there's something there that I think needs to be recognized or acknowledged from the standpoint of where that isolationist is coming from or that kind of isolationist rhetoric, because it may not be someone who's actually truly an isolationist. And the thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to just keep going here for a second, so just give me a second, is, you know, here in the U.S., you know, like I wanted to get your thoughts on how this has played out in our politics. And what I specifically want to ask is, or what I want to get into specifically, is this context of isolationist type sentiments. And what we're seeing in many respects, we're seeing this, these types of sentiments. There are, gen there are people who genuinely have isolationist type kind of mentalities. You know, like that's always existed. That exists in both parties, you know, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. They both have parts of them that have always leaned more isolationist. But we're also seeing something else here where it's people who had very aggressive rhetoric towards Putin a couple of years ago, two, three years ago. And now it almost looks like political opportunism almost. Well, I should say this political opportunism built on the Russian propaganda machine where now they're not necessarily they weren't isolationists two or three years ago when they were talking tough about Russia and we need to contain Russia. We need to make sure that they don't you know, try to try to do these crazy things. We got NATO there, yada, yada, yada. So how much do we think do you think we're seeing this kind of true isolationist mindset pushback? Versus just political opportunism where they're just saying, hey, well, if, if Biden's the president, we need Biden to do things. Do, do anything Biden does, we have to oppose. Now, this is very bad from a, a country standpoint and you're operating a country. I guess this is what people want as far as hyper partisanship. But just what do you see there, you know, in terms of, OK, well, we have isolationist mindset. Then we also have just opportunism. Um, it's hard to break one from the other just from looking at the outside, since I'm not an isolationist. And, um, um, you know, I, I don't mind, you know, like I said earlier, right, if, if we're the big guy on the block, then I expect us to be, you know, out there in the world and not pretending like somehow we can be the biggest can't sit in the house powerhouse. And not, <laughs> if you get a big, yeah, you get a big dog on the block, else. you can't sit in the house all the time. This is yeah, how it works. It's a, exactly. So, so, so the bottom line is I can't tell a hundred percent. I want to say this. I recognize there are genuine isolationists out there, and that is a political ideology. And I don't have an issue with that as a person that enjoys living in a democracy with diverse opinions. Yeah. Because someone who's genuinely an isolationist, at least one could have a debate with them and, you and know, then we find, can vote. And if we yeah, vote, maybe find some in. common ground. Yeah. And maybe there'll be a time when they do 
believe that isolationism needs to be put on the side and all that. So that one to me is, you know, if someone's genuinely an isolationist, I, I'm not going to fault them but, for that. But the might... thing also, though, like that's what our system is built on, is differing opinions that yeah, people genuinely no, that's have. That's what I'm saying. And then you argue for your them. side. You argue for your side and you say, hey, this, this person, this this theoretical true isolationist, they'll get up and they'll say why we need to be isolationists and people either vote for that or not. And then, yeah. it, then the problem is, or not the problem, but the, the question is resolved for two years or four years or six years. And so, yeah, that's part of having an open political system. We're not all going to come to the table with the same mindset and approach, but you get to vote on it. People get to vote on it. And then we either go one way or the other. So, yeah, yeah go ahead. I, I just wanted to kind of add that into what you're saying. Well, that's the bottom line. So I don't want to stay on this too long. But the bottom line is, obviously, if someone is genuine about their political opinion, I'm not here to, you know, disrespect them or anything, whether I agree or not. Right. I think the opportunists are the ones that one has to just look at sideways and say, seriously, you know, and um, and again, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm going to point to which one's which. I'm just saying that. We can assume that some people who oppose what's going on from the American response and assisting and all that may be genuine isolationists. And there's probably a big chunk of them that are just opportunists that if it was, you know, and I think this is where leadership is important, because I'm not going to say if it was a Republican or a different Democrat or something like that. I just think that we had leadership for a few years in this country, which basically appeased the Russian story, right? I mean, and again, people can hear what I'm saying and interpret it however they want. Well, no, I, I mean, saw a press like conference. Former President Trump literally said he believed the Russian I know, that's where I'm version going. of the story yeah. on several things, you know, like over saw, our yeah. US. You know. No, but that's all I was going to say is go back to look at to play the tape from Helsinki, Finland. Yeah. And that conference when he walked out side by side with Vladimir Putin and said, I believe this guy over my own country, my own yeah. intelligence services, everyone else. So again, when you muddy the waters, you're talking about information war. Think about that might have been the biggest win in Russian history from a propaganda standpoint, where the, the Russian US, president yeah. was standing next to a U.S. president and the U.S. president said, I believe this guy next to me over my own agencies. Yeah. Ronald Reagan might have done a full black backflip in that in that coffin. Yeah. And that's where I'm getting at. And that's why, again, it's sad. Well, no, me. not just Ronald Reagan. Every U.S. president, yeah, I know. Every, proceeding all the way back well. to yeah, like, hold on, who was the guy um, uh, that started? You know that the Cold War started under, unfortunately, Truman, right? Yeah, that's what I thought of. In my head, I thought of all of them. I said, okay, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy. Well, we're not going to run through all the all the presidents. No, I'm running Nixon, <laughs> Ford, Carter, Reagan, G.H.W. Bush, Clinton, G.W. Bush, Barack Obama, and then Donald Trump, and now we have Joe Biden. And the whole time, Russia's been our adversary, and only one of those presidents didn't behave that way. And that's okay. Meaning, when he was running, when Trump was running for office, and he said, we should look to have better relations with Russia, I'm not opposed to that. But just like they did to Obama when he was coming in, talking about, I'll talk to dictators, and they got all mad at him. Because why? There's got to be certain conditions. If we want to play ball with Russia, Russia needs to behave a certain way too. Yeah, they need to play ball with us. It's exactly. not going to be we, so, we have better relations with them by doing what they say. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So exactly, I mean, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I wanted. I, I'll say this now: if you want, I'm not going to spend the time to do it. Um, and you clearly didn't want to spend the time to do it. But 
we do have receipts on who are the political opportunists here because the political opportunists are the people who were in 2019 or 2017 or whatever out here talking greasy about Russia and saying, oh, Russia got to do this. Russia has to do that. And we're going to stop. Right. We're not going to let Russia like there. There are plenty of documented quotes from politicians that are currently very prominent that we're talking all this stuff about Russia. And then now that we have this going, they're talking a completely different tune and it's all our fault. And it comes dangerously close to literally the propaganda messaging that Russia is putting out there. Well, we have yeah. our own politicians repeating that. Now, that opportunism, I find I like, yeah, I, I agree with you from the, the if you're an isolationist, then, yeah, let's have a debate. Uh, let's have the people vote. And if you win the vote, then I mean, hey, it looks like we're going to be isolationists for a little bit. But the opportunists are, are the what, what are dangerous, you know, in, in this type of situation, because they're essentially what a political opportunist is, is a person that puts whatever political opportunity that they see or that they're trying to push over the country. That is a that should be a red flag for any politician. If they will, if they're going to take opportunism and, and when it comes to our primary adversary in the world, or if, if it's not the only primary adversary, it's at least a primary adversary, as you pointed out, for the past 80 years, if they're going to use the comings and goings of that country, particularly the comings and goings of that country, invading other countries, which are trying to be democratic and so forth, you know, neighbors of NATO exhibiting belligerence towards NATO nations and so forth, then that's the kind of person that'll sell your country out completely. You know, like because that's literally what they're doing. They're saying, hey, I, my political disagreement is more important than the interest of my nation. And so therefore, I will say things or do things that undermines the that my nation's international effort and international standing to gain a political advantage domestically. So it's very dangerous from the standpoint of that. And a lot of times I think that, again, I'm not here to sit here and tell you who's doing what and everything like that. Uh, but I think that we all should look at the people who we support and say, OK, are, are, are the people that I support, are they do they put politics over international relations, over national security? Is is Are, are these issues issues that I'll say one thing and I'll say something else. It just depends on how the political winds are blowing at that time. Because those aren't the kind of people that you want in, in positions of leadership when, you know, when shit hits the fan or even in good times. Because those are people that sell you out even in good times. Well, you're you're asking a lot of people, you know. They, they, <laughs> remember, the TV, the TV and the, the, the Google machines uh, and the social medias uh, make it so people get emotionally attached to their political favorites. Yes, and that they yes, yes. Get emotionally, He's my hero. Uh, they, they get emotionally disturbed by the people who they're supposed to be disturbed by. But here's the thing. And this is where, to me, the, the information war part is interesting because, yeah, it's happening. And, and Putin, like you said, is very good at this. I want to read a couple of quotes from some of his recent speeches. This one is from October of 22, after is a little bit after the Nord Stream pipeline sabotaging. And he says, um, this is what I find interesting, what a lot of Americans don't appreciate about the European continent. He says, quote, sanctions were not, were not enough for the Anglo-Saxons. They moved on to sabotage. I love that quote because <clears throat> in America, we're so, um, uh, you know, what's the word you often use? Um, it's re re reductive oh, to just yeah, black yeah, and yeah. white, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, oh, all white people are the same. Man, that was a great quote as a reminder that Europe is a very diverse ethnically. Yeah. And so most, I would say, you know, pre middle of the 20th century, most, most white Americans were descended from the British Isles through maybe Germany, right? Um, maybe that kind of Western Europe. 
that's really where Anglo-Saxons are at, that, yeah. that, that part of Europe. The Eastern Europeans, remember we did the show on eugenics, how yeah. white Americans in the 20s didn't think of Eastern Europeans as white, remember? Yeah. Yeah. And then the, back in, the, when, in Southern the, Europe, it was the same thing from exactly. the standpoint. Exactly. And yeah, so yeah, like what, what, what Putin is fascinating is he's bringing all those ethnic, that this is what people don't get over here about well, Europe. They know how to fight. Yeah. And that's, and that's for thousands of years. I mean, well, it, yeah. this whole Ukraine thing is in large part about the Slavs. But exactly. You know, like, and, yeah. and, and, and that's why, though, it wasn't a surprise for me after last year, once the Ukrainians started fighting and, and the rest of Europe started protecting them because the Europeans know what this is. Yeah. When somebody comes over someone's border, they got this history. Those old ladies that were spitting at the Russian tanks, they were five, 10 years old during the second world war. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they were, they don't want this. And yeah. so, and so I think that's where, again, Putin miscalculated his own propaganda and even in the recent speech he did, and this is where I think it's fascinating to me, and then I'll hand it back for this last week or so, uh, marking the one year, where Putin was all ready to give his version of the State of the Union. It was called the State of the Nation Address last week. And what did Biden do? Again, this is to me the interesting games that we see, the psychological warfare part of it between the guys at the top. Yeah. For him to sneak into Ukraine take a 10-hour train ride from Poland to Kiev. Now, here's what I heard, too, that the Americans told the Russians he's doing it, which was, to me, also a big middle finger to the Russians because it's also daring Putin. I didn't well, know that. It's saying that there better not be any accidents. I didn't yeah, know. That's like basically you. what they were saying is, hold on, this guy's going to be 10 hours in, 10 hours out with no U.S. military in that country. It's the first time I learned since Lincoln went to South Carolina during the Civil War that a president went into a war zone without American troops, like really present there. Like, you know, when we see all of our presidents in recent years go to Iraq or Afghanistan, they showed up to American base where it was safe. Yeah. So for Biden to be not only sneak in, but definitely once he was there and given press conferences and all that, the Russians knew he was there and they knew he was leaving. And if, I mean, they, I'm glad they didn't shoot him, but they could have. Right. And so, you know, I, I this again, going back, like I heard one of my friends recently tell me that it was Biden's fault for the invasion because he made us look weak on our withdrawal in Afghanistan. And that made Putin think that he could do this without us, you know, being a retaliation. And my point is, is that this is what saddens me about what I see with the, the propaganda world, which is a lot, not all, but a lot of Americans have kind of fallen for this kind of stuff. When I'm starting to think, how do we not look like and look at the people of Ukraine like our revolutionary, like our founding fathers? Yeah. We were fighting off the, the yoke of King George and authoritarian, and they're doing the same with this guy. And well, they, but like, that's where because partisan advantage for many people is is more important than foreign relations, you know, international, like it's just you know what we're doing basically. And so that again, that's what we're worried about here. Is like when someone says that to you, Tunde, they're looking for a reason to poo-poo what's happening. Like, it's it's not, like, Putin isn't looking at Afghanistan. He wasn't looking at Afghanistan when he did Crimea. You know, like, he wasn't, he, he's doing this because this is his plan, this is what he wants to do. And he thought he was going to steamroll it. And, you know, like, the thing is, and what I'll, I'll say this before we close this out, is, is just that I think you're correct in the sense he overestimated the reach of his propaganda in one particular location, and that is in Europe. Yeah. Europe seemed to not buy what he was selling. Like he's gotten a foothold here. 
Like there are certain elements of America of the American because the Europeans know what Russians are about. That's yeah. why. Yeah. Well, yeah, they we know. Don't. They've seen this Clearly. before, and so like they know, and it didn't work. But the Americans, he was able to get an inroads, and you know, like I said, there there's many stories of you know Russian propaganda on the airwaves on the airwaves here in the United States. Can I can I and, stop and, you and in Russia as well? He's been able to hold it together as far as the propaganda goes and so forth. But we got to get to our next topic, man. Um, the second topic that we we had and. You know, it was it's very interesting to us, something uh, that caught our eye from the standpoint that it's something we don't ordinarily see. Now, Coppin State University is in Baltimore, Maryland. It's a historically black college and university, HBCU. And this year they crowned a Miss Coppin State who was a Latina and wasn't much of a big deal in, on campus. I mean, she apparently was Miss Junior, Miss Sophomore. So she had been, you know, kind of in these type of roles before um, on the campus and everything like that. But it once certain things got po- posted online, I think she posted a, 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 a TikTok, which, you know, showed her and talked about her and so forth. Um, and that went viral. And her, her name is Keelan Perez. And that went viral for a lot of negative reasons as well. There was a lot of pushback, a lot of people that were upset that a Latina woman was the Miss Crown, Miss uh, Coppin State. And so it was something that caught our eye and we wanted to discuss because ultimately, I mean, it, 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 it raises the question of are things like our history, one, the, the bottom line question, are historically black colleges and universities only for black people? And more na- narrowly here, is are historically black colleges and universities are the positions of you know prominence are those should those be only for black people? So Tunde, what what was your reaction to seeing this? As interesting, I, I felt like kind of like we've talked in some other conversations. It's 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 black Americans are are you know maybe at one point in this country were a monolith that you know were 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 um had a, had a shared uh, need. Uh, for for survival, you know, in terms of the culture and and a lot of yeah, similar... they were made into a monolith yeah, by were, terrorism was... and discrimination. Yeah, so there was Maslow's hierarchy and survival in 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 the, in the uh, nation was was of high paramount. Now, here we are, a couple generations after integration and all that, and and again, this is a lot of things. I joke, but it's kind of a serious joke, right? Some of the political. Um, backlash in the country culturally we've seen because integration worked and i think this is another example of integration working which is what was once maybe seen as something for black people guess what non-black people are integrating into those areas as well and black people are having mixed reactions when they see a non-black person in a space that used to be maybe traditionally dominated by a black person. That's what I'm saying, yeah. that it's interesting to watch a minority group go through this when we're used to seeing it more so happen that when blacks and other minorities enter spaces that were traditionally white. So that's why I say it's it's interesting to see it. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad to see the amount of support the young ladies had and saddened by the detractors and the negativity, but it's not a surprise. So that would yeah. be my. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think it it does reveal, and if it because if people don't know this, this would be eye opening to you. But it does reveal that people. I think you said it one time. Sometimes people are human beings too, <laughs> and I think it reveals that in this in this instance. Basically, the idea of being 
exclusionary is not something that is owned by white people. There are people of all races, of all religions that view things in a more zero sum exclusionary way. Hey, this is mine. Let's keep other people out. Let's keep out people that either don't look like me or don't have the same faith as me. There are people like that. Now, I think that's a minority of people, particularly if you believe in the creed of the United States, that should be a minority of people. And we need to continually push back on people like that. Now, in this country, just because of the historical setup, most of the pushback has been against white people who, who are offended when non-white people enter spaces like that. But we've also seen it with women as well. When women enter spaces, there's pushback if they historically haven't been there. But in this instance, what we're seeing is the whatever percentage of, of black people that kind of have that mentality as well are looking at this and say, hey, this is for us. Whereas actually, in actuality, this is it's a historically black college. And that's excellent. That's something that, but that's something that we should be proud of. But at the same time, we should want it to grow and to to continue to improve to be something that any, a lot of people would want to go to. You know, I know. I, I think the latest numbers, twenty twenty one, was that twenty five percent of the enrollment at HBCUs is non black, and I think yeah. that is a credit to. HBCUs being a desirable place to be. I'm an alum of Howard University, which is an HBCU, and we had there were there were white guys there when I was there, and we were cool. I mean, it's all good. Yeah, you know, like, you it, know, it's, it's cool. It's, I learned that um, the non-black students at HBCUs get to um, uh, apply for minority scholarships. Yeah, so a white kid could go to Howard and be a considered a minority to apply for a scholarship. I thought that was pretty cool. cool but see, <laughs> it's it's it, and honestly, it's an all or nothing thing. Either we're going to say that opportunities, you know, that this country is about, you know, inclusiveness and hey, this is something that it could be historically Harvard is a historically white university, but yeah. they can't take the position that, oh, well, since this is historically white, you know, only white people can be here. Or only white people can can have the positions of prominence here. And it, it goes both ways. You know, you, it's not one of those things that, hey, well, I want to be able to discriminate. But. Other people shouldn't be able to discriminate against me because that goes that goes their way because there are plenty of people of any race or like I say, any religion that would love the opportunity. Say, oh, oh we're discriminating now. Let's do that. You know, they want to go down that road. And so people who believe in openness and inclusiveness in the society, which is the creed of our nation, then those are people that have to stand up at times like this and say, look, no, 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 this is. This is this is what happens in an open society. If it's an yeah. HBCU, more likely than not, you'll probably have a black person in those roles because it's it, it's more, those are 75 percent of the people in the same way that anytime there's a minority of some subset, those people are more likely to be prominent in places. Yeah. Well, no, it's interesting because as you talk, it's like, you know, again, as we go having this conversation, I guess it's about a university, you know, a country's in the the throws of this these arguments about what's going to get taught let's say at, at the high school level and in public yeah. schools and all that and again this is why it's 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 kind of asinine to to to, to try and exclude certain um historic narratives from our, our our whole country's story because you know why are we even having this conversation so you know hbcus are defined as institutions founded before 1964 with the specific mission of educating black students amid the realities of legal segregation yeah so it's you 64 said something is a date because of no. the segregation issue yeah. no but but that's why you say something profound which is there was a time when every non-hbcu was a white only school yeah so there were you know it, harvard and, or, and to this date they're all historically white schools yeah and so <laughs> the point is is that 
would we be offended if today somebody said, "Well, a, a black kid can't be the, the 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 valedictorian or the or the homecoming queen of Harvard because they're not white?" Of course, we'd be offended. Yeah. So I agree with you. You 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 know we we should call out our own who say the same thing about other groups. Now, the other thing I found interesting about this specific case is um, the young lady, Miss Perez. She's of Guatemalan descent, um, and she ran unopposed in her thing. Yeah. So I was I was thinking like how people I'm sure all the people making hay on social media, which is why I'm so glad I'm not on it. Um, no one's probably looked at the fine print. The thing number one, she ran unopposed. So then that would beg me to ask somebody, well, if you're upset that she won, are you saying that that even somebody who should runs go unopposed too, shouldn't be allowed to do this? And just you just don't have anyone if no black person's running like that sounds pretty dumb. And then. The other thing which I felt really nice, first of all, I want to say that it seems like all of her peers at the other HBCUs are all supporting her. All the And other, it wasn't uh, an issue at Coppin State either. Like yeah, this, and this Coppin issue, State like, fully. They all and, were cool with it for, for them, apparently, as well. And I, I love this. I'm going to quote from the article. It says, quote, she said she was drawn to, to Coppin State for its smaller classroom size ratios and its diverse student population. Coppin State student body is 80% black, 3.1% Hispanic or Latino, and 1.7% white. Quote, when I came to Coppin, I truly felt welcome. They pushed me, they inspired me, and I felt like when I came to their orientations, I found everything that I've always wanted in the university. My point is, they should be celebrating this young yeah, lady. This, this is a great proud. commercial for this HBCUs. Yeah. yeah. Just like here. You got a non-black student saying, "Wow, I feel so welcome, and this place is awesome." Yes. Like that should be. Yeah. They should be Small putting this girl out in the commercial. All, yeah, that, she's touting it like, "Yeah, that's what we want." Don't, don't we want yeah. to take our things? Things. If you say this is ours, okay, let's take our things and make them dope. And if you make it dope, then other people are going to want to do it too. That yeah. means you're doing well. And so, and I'll tell you this though, I think I saw the unopposed piece as well, but I think even that, like, that's a that's a secondary kind of piece. Like, okay, yeah, from a practical standpoint. The person saying it, oh, well, this should be only for a black person. Uh, you know, oh, well, so that person is saying this should go unfilled because a black person didn't run. But he, but with that, though, I don't think that should be the main point, though, because even if it's unopposed, like the concept that we want to exclude other people from doing this on the basis that, oh, well, they're not black and this needs to be reserved for black folks. <laughs> on the basis I, of their skin color. Imagine that. I find that offensive, <laughs> you know, like from the, from that standpoint, it's like, look, no, let's not, you know, let, let's, let's open it for everybody. And, you know, like you just let it go like that. Like that's what an open society is, is that sometimes things aren't going to be exactly the way that you want it or the exactly, the, exactly the way you would build it if you could. And so if that's the case, like that's something that people we again we see this struggle this mentality struggle with white people more prominently because most things in the united states are historically white this historically white that and so white people have this anxiety not all white people of course but the white people who look at things like this have this anxiety publicly more often but we're getting to see that this exists in the black community for example i'm sure it exists in other communities as well because it's a human thing and again people who are here because they want to be in an open society or because they were born here and they buy into the idea of the open society. This is the opportunity to say, no, this is okay. This is what happens in open society. Sometimes things that you might not love it, but that's not the thing. You know, it's like, look, a lot of things, a lot of times things happen in open societies that you may not love, but it's about being inclusive and being open and, you know, let, let, let the best man go or the best woman go. And, you know, we go from there. Yeah, and it's interesting as we wrap it up because it really just does speak to the <laughs> sometimes people are human beings too, you know, <laughs> the humanity of it that 
Because I think when we did the conversation about Kanye West's anti-Semitism last year, it's kind of similar where, yeah. you know, culturally our society, we're not used to seeing black Americans be bigots. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, we all know. And it's that not they because be. there isn't some small population of them that are. It's yeah. just that they're that they're not generally the ones that are out there causing havoc based on bigotry. Yeah. And and but that's why I say it's fascinating to watch it play out more so in the open space. I'm not saying I like it. I think it's sad, but it's in one way one can say, yeah, this is what integration looks like. Even the, the group that was once the minority group, you know, there's some level of equality. They're going to discriminate, too. And I think that it brings us more to this place of. Well, you shouldn't you know, say that, though, because, again, she is she 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 got put in this position. She got elected to this position yeah. and everything. And so what it's more so is that some people in that group will be unhappy about that. Yeah, yeah. Is, is no, and that's important. what I mean. It's it's a great point you make that we've seen things like here's an example of what I thought of Charlottesville in 2017, the Unite the Right rally. Remember, let's be let, again. You want to go talk about information wars. That was a big one, too, in our country. The reality was that the city of Charlottesville, the city had a vote and its citizens voted to remove Confederate statues, local government decision by the people. These right wing guys didn't like it. They found out about it. And guys came from around the country with armed with with shields and sticks and all that. And with the tiki torches, torches talking about torches, yeah. Jews will not replace us in blood and soil. Remember that. Yeah. And then if you look and anyone can use their Google machine to to, to and they Google did it. I mean, you can't leave out this part. They did it to intimidate the local officials who, Correct. you know, the locally and elected government, locally elected officials. They wanted to intimidate them to try to get them to reverse course on something that the people wanted. Correct. And so Charlottesville is not a majority black city. That means that white people voted to remove the Confederate statues in their cities. And other white people saw that around the country, didn't like it and came and made a big mess of it. And somehow where we were told there was fine people on both sides of that. But that's besides the point. And what I'm saying is, is this is similar where internally the group was OK with it. Yeah. But then people from the outside are coming and saying, oh, we got a big problem with this and disrupting. This isn't how it should be. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, yeah. People from the outside. Now, that's a good point, because yeah, so we like should take the people that are detracting this young lady and the people who went from out of town to Charlottesville to march against the thing. And we should put them all in a room together. And no, you know what? We should put them on a barge and let them find their own countries. See, clearly, they don't love America and they don't like the America that they don't like what in. America stands for. Maybe, you know what? Maybe they can go to Russia. Hey, well, Russia does like to get down like that. Yeah, they need more <laughs> troops too now. So, well, but no, I, tough guys. They can walk around with those tiki torches on the Ukrainian streets <laughs> telling them, you know, you won't replace us, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, so, but no, I think we can wrap from there. We appreciate everybody for joining us on this episode of Call Like I See It. Subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review us, tell us what you think, send it to a friend. And until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm Tunde Lana. All right, we'll talk to you next time.